check, check, mic check, check one, check. Is that good? Okay. So it's exciting to break new ground at AC Squared because it's going to go down in our history books as a family. You know, it's not a normal activity on a Sunday morning that a church would come together and read a book of the Bible in its entirety while it's being read. And so we don't boast in the fact that we were able to accomplish that, but we thank God for the fact that we were able to accomplish that because that's how families do things. They do things together as a family unit, not just in a house, but in their home. And this is our home that God has gifted us with as a local church. So as we take a moment to intrinsically celebrate that, I'm going to pray and thank God for the gift that he just bestowed on us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that we can sit here in a temperature-controlled room and enjoy a pre-recorded reading of the word. While so much of the world is being persecuted for the faith of Jesus Christ and for the gospel of God, we are sitting here comfortable, Father. And so we thank you for the gift that we have. We pray that we would honor you in that gift with our lives. That we wouldn't just hear the word and be changed intrinsically, but we would take our bodies that you've gifted us with and we would go into our city and we would change our city as we proclaim the gospel of God to the lost. That's our goal, Lord. As we begin to study the book of Ruth, we pray that you would transform us in a way that would equip us to bring change in the world that you created so that we would partner with you to establish the kingdom of God by the gifts that your Holy Spirit has given us, gifts which are irrevocable. So we submit ourselves today, Lord, to the Spirit of God that is at work in our midst. We submit ourselves to the authority of the text, and we ask that as we study your word, Father, you would change us for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, it's no... Uh, it's no secret that here at AC Squared, we believe that information, information is one of our greatest tools as a student or as students, plural, of the text. Information is key. Do we understand how blessed we are to live in the modern age of information? Because that's what they call the modern age. It's true that God has blessed us in such a way that we get to experience in our lives a time where information is so easily accessible. And because we view information as a valuable tool, one that can be used to bring us into a deeper level of understanding, both individually and collectively, it's for those reasons that we've chosen to decide this morning to spend the entire morning surveying the background of the information of the book of Ruth because we've just read the book of Ruth in its entirety. Strategically, the leadership here believes that that is the best way to begin a new series. Look, these sermons are difficult because they're highly informational, so they're more like a teaching and less than a sermon. But in reality... We know in our minds and we believe in our hearts that this is the best strategy because what we're going to do is we're going to lay the groundwork today so that in future weeks, as we study the book verse by verse, we can honor the author's intention and the original audience's understanding before we extrapolate how it applies to us today. 
This is how you strategically approach the Bible. This is how you honor God and the people that he used to author it. This is how you honor his people who the word belonged to first before it was ours. This is how God changes and transforms us. We're passionate about the text around here. We call ourselves a text-driven people. And so we get excited about the Bible because the Bible is not boring. It is the Word of God for all of humanity for all of time. It is His greatest revelation of who He is and His character and His nature to us. And we submit ourselves to it with hearts that are glad. So this is our preparation, teaching, slash sermon, as we begin to enter into the book of Ruth. Is everybody ready? All right, then let's begin. Let's talk about the title of the book. Let's hit the potential authors, and then let's hit the possible dates of authorship. So first we should point out that there are three main characters who function in the book of Ruth. There are three main characters. There's Ruth. Naomi, and Boaz. And although Ruth plays a significant role, scholars agree, and so do I, that it's not exactly clear if she's the main character. It's just not clear. Look, Daniel Block points out that the book opens up by describing the crisis in Naomi's family, and he also observes that the book concludes by bringing about the resolution to her crisis through the birth of Obed. Block also observes that of the three main characters, Ruth speaks the least, and when she speaks, her speeches are the shortest. Pun intended. <laughs> this is just a couple of reasons why it's important to talk about the title and why the title is interesting and why the title has value. It's also worth mentioning that the book of Ruth is one of two of the Old Testament books named after a woman. Can anyone tell me the other one? There it is. It's Esther, and Esther was a queen in exile, nonetheless. Another really interesting detail about Ruth in regard to the title is that ethnically, <gasps> yeah, we're going to talk about race in church today because we ain't scared. And we're not a politically correct, driven organization or people. We're a people of God. And the truth is not something we shy away from. Ethnically, Ruth is not an Israelite. She's a Moabite. Which means that we've just identified a book within the Hebrew Bible that is named after an outsider. Ruth is a misfit and a foreigner to the nation of Israel. We're two minutes into the sermon. <laughs> We're talking about the title. And we've already neutered the claim of Richard Dawkins who says that the God of the Old Testament is a misogynistic racist. If such a claim were true, Richard, he, the God of the Old Testament, who just so happens to be the God of the New Testament, he wouldn't allow the name of a female to grace the position of a title within the holy book of his chosen people, let alone the name of a Moabite woman. Pause. If you're one of those people who's like, God didn't write the Bible, I would say you're correct. The Bible has human authors. But at AC squared, 
we have no problem with the reality that God is the ultimate source of Scripture and the human author is the immediate source of Scripture. We know how to make distinctions around here. We know how to parse terminology. If you're one of those people who doesn't believe in God, at the very least, you have to jettison the idea that Israel was misogynistic, racist, and ethnocentric in their practices. Because we just proved that the human authors named a book in their holy book after a Moabite woman. Sorry, Richard, stick to biology, not philosophy and theology. Because you're wrong, Dawkins. Period. And for those who discount God, jettison the idea that his people were ethnocentric in their practices. But I digress. Let's talk about the author. Or, more importantly, we should say, the potential author. Dan Kent notes that the Talmud designates Samuel, who was a judge and a prophet in Israel, as the author. However, scholars like Lesore, Hubbard, and Bush write that such an attribution cannot be correct. They go on to say that the book must originate after David's rule. And history dictates that David reigned sometime after Samuel died. As a matter of fact, if we were to just reopen the scripture and reread the genealogical record in context, we would see that the genealogical record presupposes that David was already a well-known figure in Israel by the time the book in its final form came together. So maybe Kent is correct when he writes that the claim of the Talmud is a claim that offers no real supporting evidence. So with Samuel off the table, who does that leave us with? <clears throat> Ladies, recent scholarship suggests that King David's daughter Tamar could be the potential author. That's what recent scholarship argues. It, they argue it very well. They say at the very least, perhaps a group of women is responsible for the generation of the original oral tradition. So in its origins as an oral tradition, they say the gr a group of women may be responsible. <gasps> is this pastor actually saying that women authored the text of Scripture? No, he's saying scholars argue well that women authored a portion of the text of Scripture. And you would do well to read their literature and inform yourself on their position, even if it differs with yours. However, when it comes down to brass tacks, as a church, and I'm talking to AC Squared, we need to be ready to admit that the author of this delightful little book continues to remain unidentifiable. So you cannot argue that it's only a male, and you cannot argue that it is a female, or a group of females. Whatever it is, it's a theory. It's only a theory because there's not enough evidence to definitively make a decision on who authored the book. And that's okay. There's books in the New Testament like that. Hebrews. Nobody knows who wrote it. Lots of people argue that Paul wrote it. I believe that Luke did. There's so many choices on the table. But remember, they're theories. And we embrace theories around here. Why do we embrace theories? Because theories force us to think and then talk, right, Art? About what the text actually means when it says something. And it's fun because we're passionate about the Word of God. 
This creates a perfect segue to the topic of potential dates for authorship. Now, authorship varies from the author. Why? What a great question. We talked about it in Galatians. Paul dictated the letter of Galatians. Someone wrote it. Oh, Matt, we don't know that. He just says, now you see that I write with large letters. So we look at Romans and say, well, Tertius says I wrote the letter. But we know it's Paul's, Rome, uh, Paul's letter to the church at Rome. It's the same with the Old Testament text. In fact, you have the oral traditions in the ancient Near Eastern thought. The book is the last step in the process because it's an oral culture, largely illiterate, and paper is not a commodity then like it is today. Very expensive to produce a parchment. So not everyone had access to it, which means oral tradition ruled the world then. In fact, two-thirds of the world today operates under oral tradition. So the world today is still ruled by oral tradition. So we don't know when the book was authored in its final form. Here's where we need to parse more terminology. Here's where we need to make distinctions. Because Christians need to be intellectually capable of defending their faith. Authorship is distinct from a book's setting or backdrop. The setting of the book is obviously the judge's era. We're not even through the first verse in its entirety. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The narrator in Old Testament narration or narrative, is omniscient. He is the one with all of the details. He tells his audience in the first verse, in the first half of the first verse, what the setting or the backdrop of the story is. When the judges ruled. Anybody ever heard of the book of Judges? There you go. But we're not talking about the setting. We're talking about potential dates for authorship. As far as dates go, Scholars across the spectrum differ on the spectrum. <laughs> you got guys and girls, groups of people who are deep thinkers. And they date the book as early as the beginning of Israel's monarchy and as late as 3rd century B.C. Pump the brakes. What the heck is the beginning of Israel's monarchy and what's the 3rd century B.C.? We're not all on the same page here. We don't all have the same base knowledge, so let's explain that. In fact, let's think about a more simplistic way of even articulating it. How about pre-exile, post-exile, instead of the beginning of the monarchy as late as 3rd century BC? Pre-exile, post-exile. So how do we think about this? Well, you think pre-exile long before Nebuchadnezzar comes from Babylon and destroys the southern kingdom and takes Israel into exile, long before that, you have the beginning of the monarchy. Saul, David, Solomon. So some groups of scholars date it that early. And then you have the return from exile, where Darius has conquered Babylon, and he's equipped Israel to go back home to reestablish borders and to build the second temple. That's what you have in the post-exile even potentially during the Maccabean Revolt era, in the days leading up to the birth of our Savior. They date it that late. It's interesting. So there's two camps. Two camps when it comes to authorship. There's the ones who date it early, post-exile. 
They like to point out the use of classical Hebrew idioms, syntax, and style in the book of Ruth. All of these are located in the original autographs, which aren't that original unless you consider the Dead Sea Scrolls or the Masoretic text. I can use terms like that now because Tommy just did a four-part series on the canon. Now we've been educated. Now we know the Hebrew text is the Masoretic text in its entirety, and the Dead Sea Scrolls are compilations of scrolls that were found at Qumran that have the entirety of the text of the Old Testament. So you've got those who dated early, and they point to things like classical Hebrew, things that match the book of 1 Samuel. It's the kind of stuff that differs from post-exilic writings, stuff that you find in Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and Chronicles. These are important differences that we need to know about. You've got the other camp, too. They're the post-exilic camp. They're the ones who date it way late. They point to linguistic forms also, but they don't talk about classical Hebrew. They talk about the Aramaisms that exist in the original manuscripts. Okay. They also make claims like this. Legal customs evident in the book of Ruth reflect circumstances from the post-exilic period. James McNoan writes, Evidence that the book of Ruth was written for a later audience is found in the way that it explains some of the practices and customs of the judges period. He goes on to say it's clear that the book was intended for a late audience that was unfamiliar with earlier customs. Think about the language in chapter 4 that describes the exchange of the sandal for the property and how it describes it as unfamiliar or unknown or at least he has to explain what's going on to the hearer. That may be evidence for a late date. So pick your poison. <laughs> Was it authored early? <sighs> late? <sighs> Pre-exilic, post-exilic? I don't know! <laughs> Nobody knows. Nobody knows. And that's okay because just like the author of the, just like the identity of the author, any current proposals for the authorship remain speculative at best. They're all just theories. But remember, we like theories because theories force us to think. Thinking causes us to ask questions. Questions demand answers. Question everything. Don't just believe what I say. The Bereans didn't just believe Paul. They went home and studied the text for themselves. And Paul says they were the blessed above all for questioning his teaching. So question mine too. And question the text as well. Because it will stand the test of time. It has thus far. All right. Let's talk about canonicity. Let's talk about genre and literary form. Remember, we're laying the groundwork so that in the future weeks ahead, as we study the book verse by verse, we'll be able to wrap our heads around what we're actually talking about. So this is necessary, although it's difficult, because it's informational. It's like, I didn't show up to church to get a bunch of information dumped on me, but a good student of the Bible asks for the cultural background and the cultural context and the history of the Bible so that they can understand it. The height, the depth, and the breadth is, Paul, is what Paul says. Of what? Of God. The object of our worship. The ultimate source behind the text. 
Tommy, like I just said, took us through a four-part series on the canon. And if you haven't seen it, it's on YouTube. If you weren't here for it, I would encourage you, go. It's very valuable. It will increase your understanding of how God's Word is even referred to as God's Word. It's a beautiful series. And he put a lot of hard work into it. I learned so much, and I'm so thankful for it. Now, what we should be noticing... Uh, can we go to the next slide? Yeah, right here. Canonicity. What we should be noticing is that Ruth is in both columns in differing canons. Well, why is that important, Matt? And that's a great question. That's one you should be asking. Ruth historically stands uncontested as canonical. And these on the screen are just two of the many examples we could give of different canons. Archaeologists discovered four fragments of Ruth in the caves at Qumran validating its importance. Remember, it was the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in Qumran. They predate the Hebrew text, which means the Greek tradition that was taken out of the Hebrew predates the copy of the Hebrew Bible we have today. It was destroyed. Praise God for Alexander the Great, who, as he conquered the world, commissioned the scribes of the Hebrew people to render God's word in the Greek text. And then later on, the Masoretes came together, and they took and they translated it, and they gave it the Hebrew origin. It's a beautiful thing how God has worked his redemptive arm throughout history to provide for his people. Now, when we talk about the placement of Ruth within the canon of the Hebrew scriptures, it's been pretty fluid throughout all of history. As you can see on the slide, Jerome, in his copy of the Hebrew canon, places it in the writings, while our English Old Testaments place it after judges in the early history. Now, we don't have time to talk about the Babylonian Talmud or the Megaloth, all of which have differing canonical locations for Ruth. But again, this isn't problematic for us at AC Squared. It's not. It's not problematic for us. Think about it like this. If we were all to get on an airplane right now and travel to the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., then we were to get on a different airplane and fly to the reading room at the British Museum in London, would we expect to find the books displayed uniformly in both libraries? That'd be ridiculous. That thought is stupid. That expectation is unrealistic. However, what the illustration teaches us is that the books, although they won't be found in the same places across libraries, the books of importance, they'll always be found and ultimately made available in the world's greatest library. The books that count will be there. That's what the illustration teaches us. So what about genre? Like, how are we supposed to classify the book of Ruth? Do I read my phone bill the same way I read my sci-fi novel? Ah, the bill. It says 80 bucks or almost 200 if you have AT&T, apparently. But I'm going to read it like a sci-fi novel, and I'm going to throw maybe 50 bucks at it. Is your phone going to stay on? No, you approach the way that you read literary genres different. 
Which is why we need to know what the genre of Ruth is so we read it properly the way that the author intended it to be read. Now, is it a novella? Is Ruth a divine comedy? Is it a folk tale? Maybe it's a migration narrative, or maybe it's just an edifying historical short story. I can make my choice. What's your decision? How do you classify the book? Now, citing the work of Campbell, Robert L. Hubbard identifies four reasons why the modern reader should approach the book of Ruth as a short story. So let's explore those real quickly. A, for the people who love the original language like the Hebrew and the Greek, he says it uses elevated prose and semi-poetic elements, especially in the speech sections. B, for the layperson, like me, he says it focuses on typical people without excluding important figures. He says it shows interest in the ordinary affairs of life, and unlike a novella, the short story contains valuable historic information. Oh, take novella off the table. Ruth includes key historical information. C, the purpose of a short story, uh, the purpose of a short story, sorry, I can't talk, is both to entertain and instruct, and Ruth accomplishes both entertaining and instructing very beautifully. D, finally, the audience, that's us today, just as the audience existed then, one exists today, we get to enjoy the masterful craftsmanship of the, ardor, of the author's ability to wed. He literally brings together literary artistry with theological messaging. Listen to George Schwab. George Schwab says, history is one dimension of the book of Ruth. It's only one. And literary quality and artistry is another. So as modern readers, it's our responsibility to do our best not to exchange one, or the o one over the other. And I think that if we think about it, we can all relish the artistry without abandoning the historicity of the book. Sound like a plan? Okay, cool. There's no need to be so Aristotelian in our thought process these days. We understand the reality of a both-and we don't always reduce everything down to an either-or. Not everything in life and not everything in the text of Scripture is as black and white as some people like to make it. If we spend five minutes reading the Bible honestly and intellectually, we will come to find that out. Let's take a look at a map as we talk about geography. I mean, maps are cool. Maps help us to get familiar with the land that God gave to his people and he gave them responsibility over, and he asked them to take dominion over. So here's what the land looks like on a map today. You can see that Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, and Kilion, from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, probably resupply. From Jerusalem to Jericho, probably resupply. From Jericho to Heshbron, probably resupply, all the way down until they reach Moab. This is how you would travel in the ancient Near East. There's no cars. There's no airplanes. There's sandals and feet. When I was in the army, we called our boots tan Cadillacs. Yep. Now, 
It's true, some of us don't do so well with map reading, and that's totally fine because map reading is a learned discipline. It doesn't just come naturally to people. So maybe this map, the next one, maybe that's easier for us to read. It kind of flattens out the geography, removes the mountainous terrain features, and it just shows you something a little bit more simplistic. Modern tour companies in Israel use language like this to describe the terrain traveled in the opening of chapter 1. Listen, because this is on their website. As one travels on a tour of Israel, moving from the city of Bethlehem to the country of Moab, they will experience the mountainous strips of land in modern Jordan, where you can imagine the lives of Ruth and Naomi traveling the same 50 miles of rugged and steep terrain. And although it is a short trip today, it would have taken Ruth and Naomi approximately 7 to 10 days on foot to complete their journey, weather permitting. It's pretty cool that we could walk in the proverbial footsteps of Ruth and Naomi today if we were to visit the Holy Land. It's pretty cool, isn't it? The same potential route. Another thing that as modern students of the text we want to do when we come to it is we want to realize the details revealed in a close reading of the text. This is why we listened to and read the whole book this morning. Because when we do a close reading and we look for the geography and the landscapes, dots begin to connect for the reader. Consider migration due to famine. That requires geography. Chapter 1, verse 1. Migration due to famine. How about the allusion to burial customs in chapter 1, verse 17? You need land and a required landscape to bury people. How about the layout of Bethlehem with a gate in the front of the city and threshing floors throughout the land? That requires geography and landscape. Chapter 2, verse, chapter two and chapter 4. And the harvest scenes. You need land to produce a harvest. Chapter 2 and 3, and the legal processes which unfold in the city gate, chapter 4, in front of the elders and the witnesses. Are we talking about a real place that exists on the blue planet that we live on? The answer is yes. All of these examples require geography and a landscape, and they all just so happen to fit perfectly the era of the story, the judge's era. This is just a small dose of what the cultural context and the history can bring to life in the story for the serious student of Scripture. I don't know about you, but this stuff excites me. Like, are you guys bored? Or is it exciting to find out that we could walk in the steps that Ruth and Naomi walked in? That we could visit their homeland? That we could actually go there and close our eyes and picture what it looked like in the ancient Near Eastern Mesopotamian context? How beautiful to recognize the depth of the text of God's Word. Okay, so we've covered a lot so far. We've got three things left, and we're going to wrap it up. We've got the book's characters, purpose, and theology. Now, we've already mentioned three characters function in the book. Does anyone remember their names? I heard Ruth, Naomi, and what? Boaz. All right. Here's a list of characters who grace the pages of the story regardless of their impact. You've got Elimelech, 
the husband of Naomi. Naomi is also referred to as Mara. You've got Malon and Kilion, the sons of Elimelech and Naomi. Yahweh, who is also referred to in Ruth, two Moabite women. You've got Yahweh, who is also referred to in the original autographs as Shaddai, which we believe is a derivative of El Shaddai. You've got Boaz. You've got the young man who is the foreigner, uh, who is the foreman in the fields of Boaz. You've got the reapers who work Boaz's fields, and you've got the women, the young women, who Ruth is encouraged to glean with behind the reapers. You've got the near redeemer, the one who is closer to redeem Ruth than Boaz. Literally in the Hebrew, they refer to him as so-and-so. He's a name, he's what you call a nameless character. <laughs> Yeah, you're like, ah, in history, you could have put my name there and you called me so-and-so? Seriously? You've got the elders and the witnesses. And then when you read chapter 4, you hear names like Rachel and Leah, Perez, Tamar. This is not the Tamar that I mentioned, the, uh, the daughter of King David. This is Tamar from Genesis, the one who uh, uh, bamboozled Judah. <laughs> Oh, there's Judah, <laughs> Obed, Jesse, and David, and then you've got the genealogical record. But this stuff is not boring. It's interconnected to the whole of the Torah. And then if you read Matthew and Luke and the genealogies, you'll see Rahab and Tamar and Ruth all over again. <laughs> it's pretty cool. While we're talking about the cast of the book, we should also take a moment to talk about a foil. And I'm not talking about like aluminum tin foil. <laughs> I'm talking about a foil and how it operates within a narrative. A foil is someone or something that serves to contrast one against another. Its only function is to make a comparison. One example of a foil in the story of, Opa, uh, of Orpah and Ruth is that Orpah serves as a foil to Ruth. You see, Orpah sets the example for what is expected and what is sensible. She heeds the advice of Naomi. And had not Orpah made the decision to heed Naomi's advice and to return home, we would have no backdrop to compare the decision which Ruth makes. You see, Ruth's decision teaches the audience what a standard of extraordinary total selflessness looks like. So don't beat up on Orpah. <laughs> You know why I say don't beat up on Orpah? Because she went home to Moab and because she decided to continue to worship Chemish? We don't beat up on her because the narrator never beats up on her. <laughs> and without her decision, we'd have no backdrop to be like, Ruth did something amazing! <laughs> and God blessed her for it. That's how a foil operates. Go read the story and look for other foils throughout the week ahead. For us, Ruth introduces the idea of chesed. I want everybody to say chesed. Put some spit on it. Chesed. There you go. When Ruth introduces the idea of chesed in chapter 1, she earns the title of chayel in chapter 3 and 4. Say chayel. There you go. Chesed, chayel. We will learn more about these terms in the weeks to come.
The whole point of introducing the characters and discussing the function of a foil is to help us fall in love with them. Anybody here a fan of reading? Anybody fall in love with books and characters? Okay. As we read the story, we should desire to see through the characters' eyes. We should desire to feel what they feel because it's when we do this that we learn what they learned. Let's make an attempt to get involved with the narrative. If we can do it at fic with fictional characters at home on the TV screen, and I know everybody in this room has cried during at least one movie in their life. If we can do it at home with the TV, I think that we should be able to do it with the ancestry of our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we love God? We should love his ancestors who brought him into his human state. We have no excuse not to do that. So AC Squared is a church. I want to challenge us to make the commitment to read the story over and over and over again, to listen to the story over and over and over again in the weeks ahead as we grow to know and love the individuals in the story. Can we do that? It took us less than 18 minutes to listen to the book. That's the drive to work and back for most of us. It's easy, easy peasy. Let's move on to the topic of purpose. In the book of Ruth, Donald Leggett argues that when it comes to a book like Ruth, rather than attempting to reduce it down to one overriding purpose, it's best to interpret a book like this as having multiple purposes. I love this idea. I'm on board with this type of thinking. We should get on board with this type of thinking. All too often in Western culture, we attempt to reduce things, whatever it may be that's in view, down to an either-or. And more often than not, that works to our disadvantage. It creates division. It creates segregation. And it pits people against one another. In his section on major themes and purposes, Robert Christholm Jr. offers four observations in regard to the purpose of the book. First, we're talking about purpose, right? Purpose. First, he states that the book of Ruth stands to teach us that Israel's God is concerned for the needy. What a great purpose. If any book exists, and it exists solely to teach us that the creator of the universe is concerned for the needy, that's a great purpose. Second, he says Israel's God, the one who is concerned for the needy, expects his people to share his concern and to demonstrate chesed, loyalty in their relationships that way you can love one another the way that god has loved us third such faithfulness he says pays off because those who demonstrate loyal love can expect to be richly rewarded by the lord what a perfect giving message this morning because we don't expect monetary value as our reward we expect spiritual rewards that which what that which is not corruptible that which no moth and no rust can destroy a treasure that can be laid up in heaven. That's what we pursue. And fourth, the sacrificial acts of the characters and the love displayed in the book foreshadows for all of us on this side of the cross the supreme act of sacrificial love for all of humanity. Christ died for all of humanity. John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Remember, Christ did not just die for our sins. He died for the sins of the entire world. Sorry, limited atonement. It's just not biblical. And we ain't going to preach it at this church. 
we will. You want to go? Let's go, baby. It's a theory. It's a theological theory. And we'll engage with it while we disagree with it. And you could disagree with me and embrace limited atonement. It's not going to bother me. I could care less. You're reading the Bible and you're thinking about God. And that's good enough. In fact, that's great. Another purpose of the book of Ruth is to display human participation in the act of bringing about God's blessing. Old Testament Jeff Anderson, who is a, who is a biblical scholar, he was one of my professors in college, he notes that there are six blessings strung throughout the story of Ruth. And all of these blessings are cyclical in nature. Allow me to explain. Naomi blesses Ruth. Ruth blesses Boaz. Naomi blesses Ruth. Boaz blesses Ruth. All of the people and the elders bless Ruth. And the women of Bethlehem bless Naomi. Did you catch it? Naomi is both the blesser and the blessed. Naomi is the initiator of the first blessing in the book. And she is the recipient of the final blessing in the book. That is the cyclical nature of how the blessings operate in this book. Observations. Write down your observations as you read. Oh, there's a blessing. God's going to do something. And because there are these types of blessings in the book, we find another purpose for the book of Ruth. It's to teach its audience that God not only hears our prayers, but that he has the authority to fulfill one's position, one's petition. What does Hebrew say? It says, go with boldness to the throne of God's grace and make your request known. James says, don't ask double-mindedly. Solidarity of mind, solidarity of spirit. When you approach God and you make your request known to him, he knows the words before you even speak them, but he's invited you into the process of relationship which requires communication. This is the God of the Bible. Side note, apart from two references, chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 4, verse 13, the narrator, the one in the text who's omniscient, does not describe God as directly intervening in human affairs. Only two times does God directly intervene in human affairs. This reveals yet another purpose in the book of Ruth. This is my favorite purpose in the book of Ruth. God sovereignly and providentially chose to gift humanity with a freedom of the will so that we could freely participate in bringing about his glorious blessings to the whole of humanity. Prayers are prayed. Prayers are answered. People function in the operation of bringing about the answer to their own petitions. In the book of Ruth, God wants to be in right relationship with you. His grace has been poured out over the whole of humanity. Take it up. Believe in Jesus. Be reconciled back to God. And spend the rest of your days knowing that when you cease to live in this universe you will cease to exist in glory with him for all of eternity. Not cease. Did I say cease? Yeah, you will not cease to exist with him in all of eternity. Thank you, Art. Kent argues that one of the purposes in the book of Ruth is to demonstrate the universal offer of faith to the whole of humanity. The universal offer of faith to the whole of humanity. This is chiefly evidenced in the reality that even a Moabitess who was cursed along with all of Moab, 
gets to share in Israel's faith and share in it in a very significant way. Your problem's not with me. Your problem's with the text if you don't believe that faith is for all. Finally, in an attempt to sum up the whole book of Ruth, Hubbard states, the book praises human chesed, loyalty shown to both family and God. It spotlights the reality that such acts will not go unrewarded. It seems to me that through these different examples, we have demonstrated on a satisfactory level that we should not attempt to reduce the book of Ruth down to one overriding singular purpose. Like God is sovereign and he has predestined every single event, period. That would be an oversimplification and an irrational reduction of the book of Ruth. Don't do that. This leads us to our final topic, the theology of Ruth. The book of Ruth presents a compelling account of how most of us experience God. Listen up. This is referred to in the ivory towers of theology as the hiddenness of God. Where is God? My husband has died. My two sons have died. I'm all alone in a foreign country. Where are you? Anybody ever felt like that? Where are you, God? Why? Rarely do we ask, what are you teaching me? Listen, the book of Ruth presents a compelling account of how most of us experience God in everyday life. Jen, we are just talking about this. Often, so often, we see God working indirectly behind the scenes. How? He answers prayers. He rewards faithfulness. He brings life where there is death. Hope where there is despair. Fullness where there is famine. Inclusion where there is exclusion. Read Ruth. The story of Ruth enacts a theology of divine and human cooperation. As those who pray for God's blessing participate in answering their own petitions as well as the prayers of others. One scholar puts it this way. Ruth is not written as a book of theology. It is a narrative concerning a family's history and its struggle throughout difficult times. Anybody experiencing difficult times? Read Ruth! The theological implications of the book relate to the faith experiences of its characters. How they understood God dealing with them. No prophets. No religious institutions. But the book shows how faith in God sustained people in and through difficult circumstances while shaping their worldview. If you've got a Christian brother or sister and they're like, I'm so pissed off at God right now. I can't believe he's abandoned me. Look at them and grieve with them. Don't try to correct them. God's going to work all things together for the good of those Shut up! We grieve with those who grieve and we rejoice with those who rejoice. In this world you will experience tribulation. Be not worried because he overcame it. We didn't overcome it. He won the battle so that we could have peace in this life and joy that transcends current tribulation. Read Ruth. 
will shape our worldview as we grow in our relationship with him. Because he loves us. Finally, the book of Ruth teaches us about chesed. This Hebrew word cannot be translated into one English word. It is impossible to say it has a one-for-one -one exchange on the language scale. Which is why scholars teach us that chesed is a covenantal term wrapping itself up in all of the positive attributes of God. Love, covenant faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, and our favorite, loyalty. Loyalty. God is loyal to us. We must be loyal to God. Finish running the race. Don't quit. It's a covenantal term. It goes beyond requirements of duty and law. In short, acts of devotion and loving kindness which arise from the heart and transcend Torah, the Mosaic legislation. As it was with the purpose, so it is with the theology, we will refuse to reduce it down to a singular ideal. Having surveyed the backdrop of the book of Ruth, and I know it took a long time, but we had to do it. We had to do it because we want to understand every single study that we do in the weeks ahead. This is required. We had to survey the backdrop of the book, its history, its cultural context, some of its language. Because now we can begin, we can begin to understand that the sacred scriptures which belong to them and are for us, the sacred scriptures which we know as the Bible, which includes the book of Ruth, it has so much to teach those who humbly approach its pages and ask God by his spirit to lead us. Saints, this is literally the tip of the iceberg. Everything we covered is the tip of the iceberg. It's descriptive. It's not exhaustive. There's so much more we could have talked about. So it's my prayer today that this study has ignited a fresh hunger and thirst in all of us for the word of God. For those of us who have a desire, and I believe that's all of you, who have a desire to understand the depths of this wonderful story's riches, I have two small homework assignments for this week. What? This pastor, he takes six weeks off, he comes back, and then he gives me homework on sermon number one after keeping me in the chair for like 45 minutes? We're passionate about the Word of God around here. <laughs> if you can't tell, we want you to be as passionate as we are. We want this fire to spread through our city because it will change our city. Look at this. Two, two, two homework assignments. Can we put them up? It's like less than seven minutes worth of reading. <laughs> so it's not like, I don't even know if it qualifies as homework. You can do it while you take a dump. <laughs> Genesis 30, 38, sorry, Genesis 38. You'll read about Judah and Tamar. Two names that you'll see in the final chapter. Everybody poops. It's a kid's book. We could talk about that, right? I can still hear people laughing. He said take a dump. <laughs> Judah and Tamar. You'll read about the origins of the genealogical line of our Messiah. Judah is the father of Perez. Perez is the first name in the genealogical record. It's important stuff. And read Judges chapter 3, verse 12 through 30. You'll learn about Ehud, but don't worry about Ehud. Focus on what's going on in the narrative. Moab is attacking Israel and killing them by the thousands. 
And Ehud, the left-handed warrior, is like, I've had enough. I'm going in. I'm assassinating the king. And I'm taking Israel back from Moab. This highlights the ethnic hatred between Moab and Israel. This will help set the context for as we study the book of Ruth. So just read these. If you're, if you're a student of the text, just take out your phone. That's cool. We're in church. Snap a photo of the slide. Boom. You'll know exactly what to read this week if you don't read anything else at all. Very, very simple. Oh, sorry I lied. I've got one more thing that I want to challenge us all to do. I want us to mark out the genealogical record located in the close of chapter 4. Whatever translation of the Bible you read, that's the right translation for you. Check this out. I want to invite all of us in to memorize the genealogical record of our Messiah. This is just a small snapshot leading up to David, but I think it's important. We're just a, how, how long this study is going to take us, but we've got that many weeks to memorize just a small portion of the text. And I think that it's worth committing it to our mind because we're instructed to love God with our mind. Sound like a plan? All right, does anybody have any questions? This is a place where we can dialogue. Yeah, Ethan. Okay, so stand by, stand by, Ethan. Say again. Okay, so that's a great question. So why didn't I mention allegory? Because when I use the four proofs that Hubbard cites from Campbell, we immediately understand that the, that the story should be read as a historically evidencing short story. And so as we get into the narrative and we do the verse-by-verse -verse breakdown, then we'll talk about the allegory and how certain characters do foreshadow what Christ ultimately accomplished. Is that fair? Okay, so that's an excellent question. Why didn't we embrace or why didn't we discuss allegory? Ethan. That's a, that's a plausible theory. So it goes on the table. And we don't reject it and we don't abandon it. I would say that if that's a question that you have, either you and I or you in our free time can look at the historicity of Ruth and we can ask, when is the earliest manuscript? And how long before that do we believe a manuscript could have existed? And then we would go back even further and say, when do we think the oral tradition started? You know, Because there are ideas that like the genealogy was tacked on the story late. And that the book was not completed until David was known to be king and be a vital piece of Israel's history, which is something those in the pre-exile would argue, right? It's okay to tack something on or edit it, ask Tommy, who taught us in the canon series. The text of scripture went through edits. It started in the original Hebrew, which is different than the biblical Hebrew. The Greek text is somewhere in between there. <laughs> and then we have the English translation. So, like... Translation requires interpretation. So, you know, the Bible has been edited. But God, right, Tommy? God has sovereignly guided the entire process so that what we have, we can believe about his character and his nature. Any other questions? Okay, so we went late. We're, gonna not, we're not going to do our last song. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to bring ourselves to the text. 
Thank you for the opportunity for the work of the scholars who have gone before us. Thank you for the opportunity of these people's hearts and minds being for you. So much for you, Lord, that they show up to church on a four-day holiday weekend when they could be camping or fishing in this beautiful state. Father, I pray your blessings on everyone who is here present and who all who couldn't be here. We pray that you would protect them in the midst of the pandemic with the spreading of the Delta variant. We pray that if people get sick, they would go through the sickness and come out on the other side of it living. We pray that we would experience no more loss in our lives, God. Father, we come to you today and we ask that you would carry us through today because today's worries are enough for today. And that tomorrow, Lord, when we wake up, we would come to you yet again to carry us through that day. But today, Father, let our goal be worshiping you and honoring you in our bodies. We love you, Lord. Pray, Father, for us as we pray to you. We thank you that there is one man who mediates between God and man. That is the man, Jesus Christ. And we know that he's interceding for us through the Holy Spirit with words that can't even be recognized. And Father, we are so grateful for that. So Lord, be with us and carry us as the week ahead unfolds. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Pastor Church.